This morning, we will be concluding our series through the Song of Solomon. It is good to be back with you this morning. My, my wife and I had a joy-filled time last weekend visiting our son and daughter-in-law and celebrating the expecting their first child there, that, that coming child. So we enjoyed that time together, but it always is good to be back with you. I do appreciate Al covering the, the pulpit on Sunday morning and David Sunday evening. It's good to know that we have people here that I can entrust in that fashion and, and have, do such a fine job at covering the Word of God when I'm absent. So it is good, though, to be back as we look forward to the, the final part of our series through this, this book. Uh, as I said at the outset, I'm not sure I've ever heard a series of, on this book. I definitely have never sat, um, gone through it myself so, as a series, so it's been a joy-filled time for me to go through it. Next week, Lord willing, we'll begin a, a series through Paul's letter through the Colossians. In, in our series of the Song of Solomon, we pictured this book as a choral arrangement, as you know, because that, that helps us understand the, the poetry that, that's been preserved here in this inspired book. This is not a story, there's not a progression of narrative that develops. It's not a story, but there is still a flow of ideas. There's a progression of, of thought expressed in emotional language of song. The, the core idea is the development of intimate love between a man and a woman. God has given us this book to, to guide us in this most powerful aspect of our humanity. We, we've seen how intimacy was restrained until the time arrived for it to be enjoyed in its proper context, within the context of the marriage covenant. Until that moment was re, restrained, but when that, that context arrived, when that proper moment came, we also saw how intimacy was enjoyed and, and celebrated. It was a gift of God to mankind. We, we've seen how circumstances and sin create conflicts within marriage. And, and then we watched as reconciliation should follow, as the husband and wife worked to resolve their differences. We, we've seen how God intends for an intimate relationship within marriage to continue as a husband and wife age together. We, we've seen all these ideas wrapped within the songs that, that are sung in this book. The, this morning we're going to hear the final lines of, of this choral arrangement, as I would envision it. This choral arrangement has been sung. We have the female solo who has been singing the lead part. She's been singing the role of the beloved, the, the young woman who became the bride, and she will sing for us again. So will, so will her lover, the, the male solo, who sang the, the part of the one who courted her and then became her husband. The chorus, the, the female friends that have sung at various times, they will have their final notes as well this morning. We're going to break the final verses into to three sections as we conclude this, this book. And each of these sections will have someone singing to the beloved and then her responding, singing a response to them. The first section is found in verses 5 through 7. In these verses, we're celebrating enduring love. Enduring love. As at other points in the song, it's not always clear who sings the specific lines, but I believe it's the initial words in verse 5 are being sung by the chorus, the, the friends of the wife, as, as they set out. And, and as we hear these final words, these are the final thoughts that we're being left with for marriage. What, how God intends for it to function. In, ver, in the first part of verse 5, the chorus sings out. 
Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leading on her beloved? Frequently, the chorus had very short lines. If they just interject, they give another perspective. They, they sing in, and now they have sing these short words. It's been a couple weeks since we looked at the previous section. But in the final part of that section, it, it rang off, if you recall, with the wife urging her husband to come away with her to the countryside. They, she wanted him to come away so they could have a time of private intimacy together. If we were to use the parlance of our day, she was looking for a romantic getaway. The, the impression that we have now is that they're returning from that, and her friends see her coming up uh, back as the couple. They see them returning. And now, as they're coming out of the fields and the villages, coming back to this center, they're observed, and, and the choir sings out this question. The image we have is of the bride leaning on her husband as they approach her friends. It's a picture of gentle companionship, affectionate happiness. That the couple are returning to the city with their love for one another evident to all. In her joy, and in response to the, the question the friends ask, who is this that we see coming? The wife sings the next words. The beloved responds, picking up in the middle of verse 5. Beneath the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she was in labor and gave you birth. Put me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as severe as Sheol. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, nor will rivers overflow it. If a man were to give all the riches of his house for love, it would be utterly despised. We could sum up the answer here that the beloved gives to this question the friends pose very simply. The friends ask, who is this returning? And the short answer is, one madly in love. That's her answer. Of course, the words she sings are longer than that, but that's the gist. She is one madly in love. And rather than answer her friends directly, she sings directly to her husband. Her love, you can picture, they're asking, who is this returning? She looks at her husband, one, madly in love. She extends that in poetic fashion. She gives a reference beginning there with beneath the apple tree. Well, that takes her all the way back to the very beginning of her love. In chapter 2, when, when this young couple was first falling in love with one another, she used the image of an apple tree to describe the, the, the forming of new love. She, she is now remembering how she discovered the man that she loves there in the countryside. This was the first time that she experienced the, the power that love possessed. It, it was there in the countryside at the beginning that she realized how dangerous love could become if it was awakened too early. And that was also when she began to realize how potentially wondrous love might be. Our bride has come a long way since that first moment. Now she's a married woman. She's married to the man that she loves. She, she is willing to joyfully claim him as her own, just as she is his. That's what she indicates there by her reference to becoming like a seal to him. That, that's a symbol that she is 
his and he is hers. The love that she has for him is stronger than death itself. She is rightly jealous of him. She will not share him with anyone. He is hers completely. Nothing can quench her devotions to him. She, she belongs exclusively to him and she implores him to, to belong to her in the same fashion. She says all this, but she says it in a public fashion. She's affirming before her friends her enduring love for her husband. Remember, this, this book is a song rather than a story. Like I said from the beginning, it's the easiest picture of this if you have the, the three parts on stage singing to one another, the beloved, the lover, and then the chorus. Here she's singing publicly, though. There, this is a song rather than a story. There's no development of theme, as I said, so there's no narrative progression, which means there's no way we can tell how long these two have been married. And that's intentional. Because whether this pair is returning from their honeymoon or returning from celebrating their 50th anniversary, the song that the wife sings would be the same. Who is this coming? One madly in love. Her love for her husband is enduring. Her love for her husband is worth celebrating. That is what she communicates. There's an immediate lesson here in these verses for all of us who are married, an application for us. We are to celebrate our enduring love. Love doesn't endure by chance. I'm sure we all know that. We've seen that at multiple times throughout this, this short book, but we also see that through life experience. Love does not endure by chance. Last, last time I mentioned it's absolutely wrong for a husband to take the position, I told my wife I loved her when we were married, and I'll tell her if it ever changes. That is not the way we put effort into love. We must put effort into our marriages to ensure that love endures. And part of the effort that we should make is celebrating that our love is enduring. We, we celebrate by, by telling others that, that we love our spouses. We, we celebrate by letting our spouse hear us tell others that we love our spouses. We also celebrate by remembering the history of our love, recounting it again and again. How did we get to know our spouse? When did we first meet? What was the development of our love? How have we gotten to this point? When did we first discover that we loved one another? What was that moment when the light bulb came on and said, oh, this might be the special one? We should celebrate all of that and then joyfully commit ourselves again and again to our spouses, affirming our devotion to each other. It takes effort for love to endure. We can also broaden the application here, though, to all of us as a church family together. We should all celebrate the marriages that, that God has formed among us. We should be delighted to see enduring love. It's a real treat that we're able to celebrate extensive marriages within our church. It's a delight to be able to, to celebrate together as a church family long Celebrations of marriage, 40, 50, 60 years that, that couples have been together. We should delight in those celebrations, but we should also delight to regularly encourage the marriages at any stage in our church family. When we find out that a couple has 
had one of those anniversary days, we can celebrate with them simply by saying happy anniversary, sharing the joy together. We do that because we know it takes effort for love to endure. But we are to celebrate enduring love. The final verses of the song, the, the, the final messages that were being given as, as this choral arrangement concludes that, that we've been given here, this song that seeds all songs, begins with the idea of celebrating enduring love. The song continues in verses 8 through 12 by promoting pure love. Promoting pure love. There are many different suggestions among the commentators and the Bible translators as who might be singing in verses 8 and 9. I think it makes most sense to suppose that, again, the chorus of friends raise their voices. They're the ones singing out once more. Verse 8. We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build for on her a battlement of silver. And, but if she is a door, we will barricade her with planks of cedar. I think it makes sense that it's the female friends because they've just observed the, the beauty of love being displayed between the, the beloved and her husband. They've seen it throughout the, the chorus and they've seen it most recently. And now they consider that among themselves, they do have a younger sister. And they desire that, that this younger one will remain chaste so that she will have the opportunity to experience the full beauty of love in due time herself. They don't want to see anything happen that will derail her from enjoying the beauty that they're observing here in the beloved as she celebrates her love for her husband. Having watched this dear friend grow in her love for her husband, they know that intimate love can be wonderful. Having heard time and again her burn and her desire for her lover, even burning in that desire before the wedding, having listened to that repeated caution that, that she's given to restrain love until it can find its rightful outlet. These ladies now know intimate love can be dangerous. Sexual desire is so strong, they, they recognize that it can threaten to break out of the rightful bounds of covenant marriage and they know the temptation there to yield to lure through, uh, of, of, of this desire th through premature expression. And they know that that will transform something that they've seen to be beautiful into something that, that is shallow and sinful. They've learned so much about love and intimacy from their friends. So, so now they commit themselves to shielding this younger sister among them, as she begins to sense the power of desire herself. They commit themselves to guiding her and protecting her. If she appears prone to yielding to the, the pull of lust, they will strengthen her resolve and function as a barricade around her. If she remains committed to purity, they will help her see how, how her commitment adorns her and increases her feminine beauty. They commit themselves to helping their younger sister remain pure so that she can experience pure love when the time is right. Hearing 
this chorus sing these words, hearing them make this commitment, the beloved again responds in verse 10. I was a wall, and my breasts were like towers. Then I became in his eyes as one who finds peace. Solomon has a vineyard at Belhaman. He entrusted the vineyard to caretakers. Each one was to bring a thousand shekels of silver for its fruit. But my own vineyard is at my disposal. The thousand shekels are for you, Solomon, and two hundred are for those who take care of its fruit. The wife responds to her friends by, in essence, affirming their commitment. And she does that by remembering that she herself passed the test that, that they're concerned about for their younger sister. They're concerned about the test of, of this desire as it comes in her life. It's a test that she herself passed. And she affirms the joy and the beauty that comes from passing that test. She arrived at her wedding mature, but untouched. She had saved herself for her husband. And she rejoices over this fact. She was able then to give herself fully to her husband on their wedding night with nothing in her past creating any turmoil or, or unrest. She was at complete peace as she gave herself to him. Now, of course, she, she no longer needs to restrain herself. Our, our beloved joyfully gives herself fully to her husband. And she uses this image again of Solomon's vineyard to make that, that point. Remember, there's many times she's pictured her husband as the king of her life, as her Solomon. So she uses this image. Solomon apparently had some vineyards that were great vineyards. The, the king, they were well known. And, and it was known that he employed many caretakers who maintained those vineyards for her. But the caretakers had pay if they wanted to enjoy the fruits that they helped produce. Even though they were caring for the vineyards, they couldn't just eat of the bounty. They had to pay for that privilege. Well, metaphorically, her body is as precious as these vineyards. But since it's hers, she can share it freely with her husband. He is her Solomon. He does not have to pay to enjoy the fruits of her vineyard. Rather, he can just enjoy them as her gift. Once more, we, we see the song here describing sexual intimacy through poetic imagery. Nothing vulgar is presented. Instead, it is, beauti is beautiful. It's, in, it's beautiful because it's being enjoyed as God intends. And is presented through a veil of poetic imagery. Within the context of the covenant of marriage, the, the beloved continues to, to celebrate the freedom that she has to enjoy intimacy. The freedom that she has to enjoy her husband fully and let him enjoy her fully. Singing of it now reinforces the commitment that her friends have made to promote pure love within their young sister. She now fully understands what's at stake because she preserved herself and has come to the other side enjoying it, uh, intimacy to the fullness as God intends. So she is in a position to share how valuable it is, how valuable it was to preserve herself for her husband. And understanding the ultimate value of intimacy should help the younger sister and the older friends save themselves for their own future. They are not giving up on pleasure by saving themselves. They are investing 
in what will yield the greatest pleasure. The pleasure that comes from using sexual intimacy as God designed it to be used. The only way that it can be used in complete peace is if it's preserved until the marriage covenant. Now we've encountered this message several times through this series. But it bears repeating as it's been repeated many times. We live in a world that, that is filled with lies and false promises about sex. Our culture gives us nothing but lies and false promises. The lies tell us that sexual intimacy is for our own personal enjoyment, that, that we should grasp it and, and enjoy it whenever we want in any way that we want, with anyone at any time. The false promise is that doing whatever we want will satisfy. Obviously, the lies are getting increasingly bold. The false promises are constantly repeated. But none of them are true. What our culture tells us about sex is false. Truth remains that only pure love, only pure intimacy as God intends between a, a man and a woman within the marriage covenant bond, only that provides full satisfying enjoyment as God intends. It's only in marriage that intimacy can, can become fully about giving rather than taking. That is where peace and joy are found. All of us need to listen to this message. Young people in particular this morning, you need to listen to this message. The message that, we were hearing, that we're hearing from the Song of Solomon may sound like a very small, lone voice calling out among thousands of conflicting voices that you're hearing from our culture all week long. Yet this lone voice remains the voice that proclaims the word of God. It is the voice of truth. Young person, your purity is worth preserving. Joy and peace comes from preserving intimacy for marriage alone. The other thing that all of us should note is that promoting purity is a collective duty. We all need to be engaged in promoting what is right and godly. It's proper for married women to engage unmarried women in encouragement when it comes to remaining pure. Just as our bride now is doing with her friends. She is engaging them in, in this conversation. Encouraging them, yes, you are right to preserve it in your younger sister. And by doing so, the implication is in yourself as well. It is proper for younger women to encourage young women to remain pure as the chorus is doing with their young sister. Yeah, I don't think it's stretching things too far at all to propose that the men should do the same thing for other men. Just because the things in the song here are presented from the woman's perspective, that does not mean that the the, that maintaining purity is a woman's job alone. It's not solely a female duty. Paul makes it clear that, that men are to flee sexual immorality as well. All of us need to be engaged in this. It's a, a job that we need collectively work in to encourage one another and, and caution one another and urge one another to promote pure love. Promoting pure love 
is nearly the last word of the song. That, that means it is an important message for us. We've heard it from the beginning. It was one of the first messages we heard. Now it's one of the last things we hear. That makes it important. Yet, there are two more verses. There's a final message that the song leaves ringing in our ears. In the final two verses, we're left with the message that is also important to be ensuring ongoing love. While there is debate over some of the previous verses as who's singing, the, the Hebrew grammar makes it clear who sings in verse 13. The man sings his final words now of the song. The husband, the lover, he sings. Verse 13. O you who sit in the gardens, my companions are listening for your voice. Let me hear it. The grammar makes it clear, as I said, the husband is singing. The grammar also makes it clear that he is singing to his bride. He is addressing the woman. His final words to her is simply a request to hear more from her. In fact, he says that his companions, the, the word that he uses for companions there is a word that he used in chapter 1, verse 7, to refer to the other shepherds, those who were his friends. He says, all my friends are listening to hear your wonderful voice as well. We're all waiting to hear your final words. Of course, it's fitting that the woman sings the final words. She's been the main singer throughout. She began the Song of Songs, and she gets to close the Song of Songs. And in the final verse, the beloved responds one last time. Hurry, my beloved. Be as a gazelle or a young stag on the mountain of spices. I've mentioned a couple of times that the, the song should put to rest any doubts that we might have regarding God's view of intimacy within marriage. Clearly, God delights in intimacy between a husband and a wife. He created as a gift for mankind. He gave it for men and women to enjoy within marriage. And God blesses it and encourages it. He gives us this book doing that. And that perspective is reinforced by this being the final word. The last words that our wife sings, the words that ring in our ears as the music ends, is a call for her husband to, to hurry and resume the delights of love once more. By, by now, the imagery of the gazelle and the stag on the mountains of spices, those are familiar images to us. We've seen them multiple times. They're poetic expressions that, that again, pull a very tactful veil over the activities of the marriage bed. There's nothing vulgar being pre presented here. This is not pornographic in any fashion. The veil is pulled in using poetic imagery, and yet it clearly informs us that the wife is encouraging the engagement. The, the husband is to physically be enjoying his wife, and the wife is equally engaged in the enjoyment. She is the one calling for him to hurry to her, and she closes with a song for him to, to depart with her to the pleasures of love that God has given them once more. I won't linger on this point as we've considered it before, but I will repeat it one more time, that, that each of us husbands and wives who are here this morning, we need to recognize that that we have a responsibility in our marriages to ensure ongoing love. 
Our marriages should remain intimate marriages. Certainly, we, we too should ensure that the proper veil is, is pulled over our marriage bed, if you will. Intimacy is a private matter between a husband and wife. We're not to go share the details with other people. Yet the fact is that the final word that God leaves for us in this God on marriage is that he places an exclamation point over the importance of intimacy. We must ensure ongoing love in our marriages. And with these final words from the, the beloved, the song ends. It ends with ensuring ongoing love. In the final verses here of the song, we've seen the importance of celebrating love. That's one of the main messages from the song. We've seen the importance of promoting pure love, another one of the main messages, and ensuring ongoing love, the third culminating message. All these three build really to one idea, the idea of intimate commitment that is expected within marriage. So before we conclude this morning, one last time I want to extract an overall principle from what we've considered in the final sections here of the psalm. The, the way I would phrase the, the overall principle this morning is, that, is this. Intimacy is designed to lead to enduring commitment. Contentment, I mean. Intimacy is designed to lead to enduring contentment. Intimacy. In one way or another, intimacy has made an appearance in every section. In the first section, intimacy made its appearance if they were returning from their time away. In the second, in the second section, it made its commitment or its appearance through their commitment to preserving intimacy for marriage. And in the third section, clearly it made its appearance as she once again urged her husband to come to her for a time of intimacy. Intimacy is central. Intimacy is designed to lead to enduring commitment. Contentment, rather. I'm messing up my words. Enduring contentment. I've just spoken about the point that intimacy is something we must pursue in our marriages. We need to recognize there, there is a connection between intimacy and enduring contentment. Contentment. God has designed it so that it is natural for us to remain content with a spouse with whom we are intimate. But I want to broaden this image, or this idea rather, beyond the marriage context. Remember, from the beginning we said marriage is intended to illustrate a greater spiritual truth. In the New Testament, we're given the image of our Savior's love for the church as that with a husband's love for his bride. The joy and the commitment and the intensity of love and intimacy in marriage are all illustrative of the joy and commitment and intensity that love is to find between Christ and his church, his bride. Enduring commitment, enduring contentment, rather, needs to be part of that as well. We know that in this sin-broken world, that it is an ongoing fight in our marriages for them to be what God intends. It's an ongoing fight to have enduring contentment in our marriages. We see discontentment all around us as marriages dissolve. 
In fact, it, it takes Christ remaking us, recreating us to be like him for our marriages to grow in the direction that they ought to grow, to grow in the direction of contentment. Well, then it should come as no surprise that in this sin-broken world, it is equally an ongoing fight in our relationship with Christ for us to be as content as we should. In the sin-broken world, it is easy for discontentment to come as well between us and Christ. For us to walk away from Him and to, and to start looking for satisfaction elsewhere. And I will submit this morning that as much like intimacy is a key to enduring contentment in our marriage, it's also a key to enduring contentment in our spiritual lives. We must seek out ongoing intimacy with Christ. Intimacy with Christ, uh, of course, is not physical, is not sexual. We've explained that numerous times as we've developed this illustration as God intends for marriage to illustrate our relationship with Christ. It's spiritual intimacy with Christ, not physical intimacy. And yet we can learn from the intimacy within marriage some of what is required for spiritual intimacy. We can learn, for example, that intimacy with Christ takes time, just as it does in the physical intimacy of marriage. There's a reason the bride calls her husband to hurry and come away once more to enjoy the pleasures of love. It takes time. Well, we must spend time with Christ if we're to be intimate in our spiritual relationship with Him. Sunday morning for a couple hours is nowhere near enough time to have an intimate relationship with our Savior. A quick 10 minutes in the morning over our coffee is not enough time. We must make time, extended periods of time, to, to spend with Christ. I've mentioned a few times the, the Baptist Fellowship Association Conference that, that's coming up in July. We haven't put out in the bulletin, July's out their ways, but I am encouraging you now to to make time for it, July, specifically July 10th through 13th, is this conference. This conference is largely days filled with, with preaching and teaching. Certainly, attending a conference on Monday through Thursday requires sacrifice. It means using vacation time. It, it means spending money on a hotel. Let me encourage you to consider making those sacrifices as an investment in pursuing intimacy with Christ. We need extended time with Christ. Intimacy also takes effort. Sadly, a person can read their Bible every day and still not know Christ intimately. We must work on getting to know Him better. Not just a surface knowledge, but a deeper knowledge. We need to push ourselves. We need to go beyond simple level of, of understanding to knowing Christ more fully. Now, I may be stealing a little Pastor Aaron's thunder from the closing announcements, but I know most of you sleep through the closing announcements anyway. So, so let me get you while you're still awake, hopefully. Listen here and let me talk to you about a new book study that, that we're starting this week in our, thir our Tuesday night book club. We're going to start reading a systematic theology book together. Most of the people in the, that are already committed to the club have never, ever read, and, read a systematic theology book. 
most people say, that's not for me, that's for, I don't know, somebody else, not me. You're wrong. We need to know Christ better. We're going to read part of this book each week and then discuss it over Zoom on Tuesday nights, week after week, because this theology book helps us know Christ more fully. I know all of us will grow in our knowledge of Christ. I expect that as we grow in our knowledge of Christ, we'll grow in our intimacy with Christ as we come to know him better. I know that's always happened to me whenever I've read through a systematic theology book. My intimacy with Christ has increased. I want to challenge you to, to consider joining us. We need to find our contentment in Christ. There's no doubt about that as believers. We need to find our contentment in Christ. We, we really shouldn't expect to do that, though, apart from the way that God has designed for us to find enduring content, contentment. And that way that God has designed is through intimacy. Intimacy is designed to lead to enduring contentment. So as we conclude this series through the Song of Solomon... Let us all pursue intimacy. Husband and wives, let's pursue intimacy within our marriage. But all of us need to be pursuing intimacy with Christ. Intimacy is designed to lead to enduring contentment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the weeks that we've been able to spend in this book. This book that you've given us that from beginning then shows how intimacy is to be handled within our human lives this to be within the context of marriage you've given this as a guide for marriage but you've also given it as an illustration as we've remembered of a spiritual truth that we are to be increasing in our spiritual intimacy with our savior jesus christ so i pray that you would help all of us because of the time we spent know how to handle marriage more properly, more fully, more completely. Whether we are personally married or not, may we understand it more clearly. But may we also all be challenged to pursue Christ more fully. We pray this in his name. Amen.